This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. So happy to have you with me today to discuss yet another case. And if you are new, then welcome. Be sure to subscribe. So today's case is another one that is still very much developing. This happened very recently, the start, the very start of 2023. And we are going to be talking about a person who is missing, but believed to have been murdered on a Walsh. And I will warn you, this case is horrific. The details in this are very disturbing. So please you know, proceed with caution. So like I said, this case is still developing. I am recording this on February 17th, and I believe it is going up February 27th. So because this is an ongoing case, it's very likely that I will be doing a part two eventually. So keep that in mind. So let's start off here by talking about Anna. Now, Anna's birth name is very hard to pronounce. I'm going to take my best guess at it, but it's possible I could be wrong. And if you know the proper way to say it, feel free to let me know in the comments and I'm sure you will. But my best guess is Anna Jubicic. I couldn't find an official pronunciation online. So again, that's just my best guess. Anna Jubicic was born April 13th, 1983 in Belgrade, Serbia to her mother, Milanka, and her father, whose name has not been released. And to the best of my knowledge, she only has one sibling, a sister named Alexandra. So Anna's early life was spent in Belgrade, where she attended school all the way through college. And then she went to the University of Belgrade and earned her bachelor's degree in French and literature. And if there's one thing that you need to know about Anna, beyond just being a wonderful human and an amazing mother, she was a very hardworking, driven person. She immigrated to the United States from Serbia in 2005 and really achieved what many would call the American dream. Anna was a dual citizen between the U.S. and Serbia, but her adult life was pretty much consumed by her work in America. She began her career in hospitality in 2005, working as a housekeeping attendant at the Inn in Little Washington. And within a year, she moved on to become a server there. And I believe it was at this job that Anna met and married her first husband, Mark Nip. In 2007, she and Mark moved to New York City, where she worked as a program logistics coordinator. And one year later, she got a job working as a reservation manager at the Wheatley Hotel in Lenox, Massachusetts. And it was in Lennox that Anna met her future second husband, Brian Walsh. Now, she was still married when she met Brian, but she did say that it was love at first sight with Brian, even though the two of them didn't begin dating till a couple years later in 2014. And in the years between the time that they met and when they started dating, Anna kept working on pursuing her career, and she even got a master's certificate in the Essentials of Hospitality Management from Cornell University. So after divorcing her first husband in 2014, she became the front office director for a hotel in Boston, all all while falling deeply in love with Brian Walsh. Brian and Anna ended up getting married on December 21st, 2015 at the Emmanuel Episcopal Church in Boston and began what she had hoped to be a lifetime of love and happiness. After they got married, she and Brian bought a beautiful home in Cohasset, Massachusetts, and they went on to have three sons. Their first son was born in 2016, followed by their second in 2019, and finally their third son was born in 2020. And given the circumstances the names of these boys have not been released to the public, which I am choosing to respect as well, obviously. And I'm glad that they have been able to maintain their privacy to some degree. And I hope it stays that way. And even after becoming a mother, Anna did not slow down when it came to her career. That was hugely important for her in life to build success and follow her dreams. And her drive was really one thing about her that so many people admired. She never shied away from achieving her goals and wanted to build the best life possible for for her family. She did make her life pretty public on social 
social media where she often posted about what she was doing and what was on the horizon. And from 2017 to 2022, she continued her work in the hospitality industry and held the title director at a variety of different hotels, primarily in the Boston area. Hello, everybody. This is Jam Motlu of the Motlu Group with uh, EXP Realty. How are you guys doing today? I have uh, my uh, entire team here with me. Um, we've got all kinds of uh, amazing folks here in the room. I'm going to show you one of them. Here's, here she is, an elf. Oh, that was me. Hi. That was you. Hi, yes. An elf on the show. Yes. Her children were so excited to see her um, this morning. They said, Mom, you look beautiful, right? Isn't that what they said? And they were excited to see me, yes. And they were excited, yes. They were excited to see her. Okay, so guys, everybody, here is our wonderful team. Lydia, come on into the picture. Hello there. Here is the Mutta group having an amazing, amazing team retreat here at the Prudential Tower. Um, we're at, okay, how do I do this thing? Okay, here we go. But then in February of 2022, she took a job as regional manager at a real estate firm called Tishman Speyer, and she began splitting her time between Boston and Washington, D.C., which, as you can imagine, was a lot of work, but it was exciting and she loved her job. I'm only guessing here, but I'm assuming that that was hard for her to be away from her husband and her kids, especially the kids. Anna was an amazing mother and very involved with her children as much as she could be as a working mom. But at the same time, she loved to be able to provide for her family. Now, you might be wondering if Anna was working full time and splitting her time between two states, what was her husband doing? Well, Brian wasn't doing much because he was on house arrest. He was on house arrest after he pleaded guilty to federal fraud charges back in 2018. Specifically, Brian pled guilty to one count each of wire fraud, interstate transportation for a scheme to defraud, possession of converted goods, and unlawful monetary transaction. So let me explain this a little bit more because Brian's criminal history is pretty extensive. First of all, Brian could not be more different than his wife, Anna. The two of them seemed like complete opposites to me. I'm not sure what things they had in common, but it definitely wasn't the way that people described them because Anna's described as this amazing, driven woman, kind, generous, loving mother. I mean, no one had anything bad to say about her that I could find. And Brian, people had plenty of bad things to say about Brian. And first of all, the reason he was on house arrest will tell you a lot about him as it is. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The reason he was on house arrest was because he defrauded someone into buying fake Andy Warhol paintings on eBay. Back in the 90s, when Brian was a student at Carnegie Mellon University, he met and befriended a student named Sam. The two of them went on to be very close friends. Even after Sam moved back home to Korea, Brian would come visit him for weeks at a time and they were very close. And one of the many things that these two bonded over was their love for art. Brian even introduced Sam to several art dealers who in 2007 helped Sam purchase several very expensive and famous pieces of art. Sam kept in contact with one of these art dealers in particular who reached out to him in 2012 asking if he was interested in purchasing two Andy Warhol shadow paintings. And it turns out he was interested. Brian, who was also a big fan of Warhol, learned about this transaction and was actually with Sam when he got the paintings. It's unclear exactly how much time had passed, but after Sam had gotten these paintings, Brian reached back out to him with a business proposal of sorts. He told him that he could sell the two Warhol paintings in addition to a few other paintings that he owned and could make Sam a lot of money. Now, Sam says that he wasn't very interested in selling the paintings at first, but Brian was pretty damn convincing, so he agreed. And he was under the impression that Brian would make him lots of money doing this, but boy, was he wrong. When Brian came to collect the two shadow paintings, he also took two 
prints by the artist Keith Haring, a Warhol dollar sign print, and a porcelain statue from the Tang Dynasty. And from what I can tell, it sounds like Sam was under the impression that Brian already had some buyers in mind, at least for some of the art, so he figured things would happen very quickly. But after weeks and then months went by and he never heard from Brian, Sam tried reaching out to see what the status was on selling the art. And he tried texting, calling, emailing Brian, but he was never able to get a hold of him. And keep in mind, Sam is his friend. Sam ended up being so fed up with not being able to reach Brian and could tell he was ghosting him. So he ended up reaching out to another mutual friend of theirs to see if maybe he could check in with Brian and get a hold of him. So this friend was able to get in touch with Brian and Brian just told him that he hadn't been able to find any buyers for the art. So he was planning on returning it. Now, since Sam wasn't even wanting to sell the art in the first place and just kind of agreed to let Brian do it because he was going to make him tons of money, this was fine and dandy for him. And he and Brian were supposed to be finding a time that they could meet up so he could give him the art back. But Brian started to flake on every plan they made. And because of this, Sam and that other mutual friend had to get another mutual friend involved. This time, someone who knew where Brian lived so they could just go pick up the art themselves. And when they went over to get the art, Brian handed over everything except the two Warhol shadow paintings. Now, I'm not sure if this friend knew that Brian was keeping these two Warhol paintings or knew exactly what he was supposed to be getting, but it was clear that now Brian was stealing this art from his friend, Sam. Obviously, this is horrible, these paintings are worth a lot, but if you ask me, stealing is some of the least horrible things that Brian Walsh has done. Still horrible, of course, but trust me, it gets much, much worse. So moving on to 2016, an eBay seller with the name Ancilly2012 made a listing for two Warhol shadow paintings priced at $100,000 for the pair. In the listing, the seller, who is later determined to be Brian, as you could probably guess, stated that he overpaid terribly for these pieces back in 2007 after paying $240,000 for the pair. He goes on to say that the auction price of these two paintings is somewhere between $120,000 and $180,000, but because he needs the money before next auction, he says he is selling them at a much cheaper price. In the listing, he gives the dimensions of the paintings, and most importantly, he includes the authentication stamp from the Warhol Foundation as proof of legitimacy. The buyer was Ron Rivlin and he owns an art gallery called Revolver in LA and he saw the listing and began taking steps to purchase the art. The buyer spoke with someone who identified themselves as Anna and they agreed that the two pieces would be purchased for $80,000. And really quick before I continue, I am not sure if it was actually Anna that he was speaking to or if it was Brian using Anna's name, but even if it was Anna, I want to mention that she was never charged with anything or accused of being involved in this scheme. They did, however, agree to do the transaction outside of eBay to avoid paying any fees and the buyer signed a contract saying that they had three days after the purchase to change their mind about the artwork and return it for a full refund. So on November 7th, 2016, the buyer flew their assistant to Boston to meet up with Brian and make the exchange. The assistant had a cashier's check for $80,000 and they met with Brian in a hotel lobby and made the exchange. But before handing over the money, the assistant wanted to do a quick inspection of the art just to make sure everything was as advertised, of course. And most importantly, of course, check that the artwork had that official Warhol Foundation stamp of authentication. And what do you know? They couldn't actually see the stamp because it was behind these large frames that Brian put the artwork in. Just to be cautious, the assistant sent Ron a photo of the art and he said, don't worry about it, go through the transaction and we will check it the following day. Of course, he's under the impression that he has time to to make a return for a full refund. And big old shocker here, but on November 8th, when they took the shadow paintings out of the frame, they saw that there was no stamp of authentication. And not only that, they looked like new canvases and new staples. And upon deeper inspection, Ron was able to see that these paintings did not look exactly like the paintings in the listing on eBay. So of course, they began taking steps to return the items for a full refund as stated in their contract, but of course, Brian was on some bullshit and I'm sure you are not shocked to hear that he just ghosted. And so Ron 
somehow was able to contact Brian's mother, who immediately replied and basically said she wasn't responsible for what her son did, but that Brian would be contacting them within a few days to resolve the issue. And another big shocker here, no response after a few days. So Ron ends up getting in touch with Anna via her work number and asks her to get involved. So finally, on November 16th, 2016, Brian emails Ron back, basically making a bunch of excuses as to why he couldn't reach him sooner. And he ultimately said he'd happily return the money as soon as the paintings themselves were brought back, which sounded really positive at first. I'm sure Ron was thinking, okay, this took a while, but at least this guy is going to give me my money back without another problem. But sadly, he was very mistaken. Weeks went by and the money still hadn't been returned. And Brian said he'd be sending the money back in smaller installments. And every time he said there was an installment on the way, it just never came. And of course, every time Brian had an excuse and in the end, only 30,000 of the 80,000 total was actually actually returned. So that's when Ron got the FBI involved. Clearly at that point, he knew there was some scheme going on here. And with the help of the FBI, Brian was caught and charged for his crimes. So even though all of this went down years ago, Brian had still not received a sentence. So from 2018 to 2023, Brian was on house arrest. And of course he was required to wear an ankle bracelet at all times, but the device that he wore wasn't like the ones that you might think. He wasn't completely confined to his home and the device didn't have a GPS monitoring system. Brian was basically allowed to have exceptions to his home confinement as long as he got them approved in advance. So for example, if he wanted to leave and go to the grocery store, he could do that as long as it was approved. This device used radio frequencies to alert the police when he did leave his home, but it wouldn't say where he went. Now, I couldn't really figure out why it was taking so long for this fraud case to move forward. Maybe the pandemic slowed things down. I'm not really sure. But because of it, Brian was still living at his Cohasset home as recently as January 1st, 2023. And a little side note here, Anna did contact the judge and asked for leniency in his case. But again, I'm not sure why things were moving so slowly. And if you thought this is where Brian's history with breaking the law ends, well, buckle up because it gets much worse. So Brian had a very strained relationship with his parents, especially his father. And in 2019, he entered a legal dispute because he was accused of destroying his father's will to gain access to his assets. Brian's father, Dr. Thomas Walsh, was a neurosurgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital before he retired and made a good life for himself. And even though he was Brian's biological father, like I said, the two of them had a very rocky relationship and they had zero contact with each other whatsoever. So when Thomas died, Brian, of course, being the thief he was, swooped in and started trying to sell off his father's items. But Thomas's closest friends, two friends of his, wanted to do something to stop this, of course. These friends, named Jeffrey Ornstein and Fred Pescatora, filed a motion in court to stop Brian from stealing his father's assets. And they alleged that he actually destroyed the will in order to gain access to these assets, even though he knew his father had left him nothing. And what's interesting is that the only reason people knew that Thomas even had a will is because Fred had taken a picture of it before Brian destroyed it. And in the will, Thomas writes, I hereby bequeath to Brian R. Walsh my best wishes, but nothing else from my estate. Now, the relationship between these two never really stood a chance when Thomas was still alive, but especially not after Brian stole $800,000 from his father in a fraudulent refinancing deal in his home, and this was 10 years before he died. The affidavit also shares a bit of the family's history and how Thomas disinherited his entire family, including Brian, decades prior, saying it was a severely dysfunctional and hostile environment. And even as Brian got older, his father wanted nothing to do with him. And at no point did Thomas and Brian ever rekindle their relationship, even though Brian says that they did. And Thomas didn't even want a relationship with Brian's children. As much as I'm sure he would want to know his grandchildren, he didn't want to take that risk because being close to Brian would potentially be extremely costly. Thomas's friend Fred, who I mentioned earlier, even stated that Brian had previously been diagnosed as a sociopath at the Austin Riggs Psychiatric Hospital and also stated that he has a history of violence and is an extremely untrustworthy person. In 
In one example, Fred says that he and Brian were leaving China and that at the last minute, Brian had tried to smuggle several antiques. And when he got caught, Fred says that Brian picked up a heavy object and attempted to kill four or five guards that were trying to apprehend him. So clearly you're starting to see that this guy was completely unhinged. And while Brian tried to argue that all of this was completely behind them and that he and his father were now on good terms, the judge luckily didn't believe that and he ruled that Brian would receive none of his father's inheritance. So I think after hearing all that, you have an idea of who Brian really was. Now, getting back to the case, I mentioned before that Anna split her time between D.C. and Cohasset, but during the 2022 holiday season, she was at home with her family. And when New Year's Eve rolled around, she and Brian didn't really have any special plans. Having three young sons, they decided to stay home and take it easy, and they actually invited over a friend of theirs for dinner, and his name is Jem Mulu. So Jem arrived around 8.30 that night, and he stayed till 1.30 a.m., and he said everything was fine. They had a really nice dinner that Brian prepared, and they really enjoyed themselves. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary to him. She said, Jem, I know you won't go out on New Year's Eve. I know you'll just stay home by yourself, and you know, Brian and I would love to see you just come over. Like, if there's anyone we'd love to see, we'd love to have over to you, please come. And so I said, of course. Brian had cooked an elaborate meal for us, and we hugged and celebrated and toasted and just what you do over New Year's. And, and there was a lot of looking forward to to the new year. Like, there was no indication of anything other than celebrating the new year, like problems on hold, whatever life's problems were. And life always gives us matters and problems and things to deal with, right? That just always is. It wasn't until three days later on January 4th that anyone became aware that something was wrong. On January 3rd, Anna had a flight booked from Boston to DC, and this is when she was scheduled to return back to work. But she never showed up for work on the 4th, and this was very out of character for her. Her coworkers knew that she would at least call if something came up, so they immediately called Cohasset police and asked that they perform a wellness check. And so police go to their house, knock on the door, looking for Anna and Brian answers. And this is when he tells police that he hasn't seen his wife in three days. They filed a missing persons report right away. And then Brian told them everything that he claimed to know. So he tells officers that in the very early morning hours of New Year's Day, I'm talking after 1 a.m., Anna is made aware of some emergency at work that would require her to leave two days earlier than planned. She was supposed to leave on the 3rd, as I mentioned. So Brian explains that she packs up her things and left the house sometime around 6 a.m. and called an Uber or Lyft to take her to the airport like she always did. And he says this is the last time he saw her. Then he goes on to tell police that he woke up at 7 a.m. He gets the boys up, makes them breakfast, and then a babysitter comes over so that he can go and run a few errands for a couple hours. He says that he first went to Shaw's grocery store to pick up a few things that they needed at home and then dropped them off before going back out to run errands for his mom, who lives about an hour and 15 minutes away. And then Brian tells them that he actually lost his phone that morning, so he didn't have GPS to take him to his mom's house. And so he got lost going to his mom's house. And so it took him an extra 30 minutes to get there. Now I'm guessing this wasn't the first time he went to his mom's house. So him saying he got lost on the way there is very suspicious. Of course it's possible. And I am someone who does not function well without GPS. I am so directionally challenged. I get lost going places all the time if I don't use my phone to get me there, but it's still very suspicious, but that's what he tells police. So he goes on to say that he went to her house and he was there for about 15 minutes and then he leaves to go to Whole Foods and CVS and run some errands for her. He says that once he drops the things off that she requested back at her house, he then heads back home. When he gets home, he finds his phone, which he said was under a couch cushion 
kitchen and he assumes his kids were playing with the phone and then hid it there. Then Brian goes on to explain that the following day, January 2nd, he only left his house once and that was to take his oldest son to Pressed Juice Bar to get a chocolate shake and the other two kids stayed home with the babysitter. This is all the information that he offers to police and then they of course start trying to locate Anna. And while the police start their investigation, Brian puts on quite a show for the public, expressing his deepest concern for his missing wife. He even called close friends to ask if they had seen her. Yes, he knew that uh, Brian Walsh, I uh, hope all is going well. Um, I was just, just reaching out to basically everybody I could. Um, Anna hasn't been in touch for a few days. Do you know anyone that might have that contact with her? Uh, just, uh, you know, calling everyone. So uh, sorry to bother you. Sure, everything's fine. Meanwhile, the police teamed up with other agencies very quickly to start conducting their search. And right away, they were able to determine that Anna's phone pinged in the location near her home on January 1st and 2nd, which they thought was strange, considering Brian had told them that she left on the 1st. And not only did this lead them to check the wooded area surrounding their home even further, it also prompted them to look deeper into Brian's story. The physical searches were very thorough and included dozens of officers and canine units. On January 6th and 7th, you could see investigators walking through the woods, along roadways, and in other neighboring areas. They even emptied out the Walsh's backyard pool as part of their search efforts. And then something really wild happened on January 6th. Investigators were shocked to find out that a former residence owned by the Walsh's had completely caught fire. And of course, since Anna had just disappeared, this looked very suspicious. But it's important to note that they sold this home back in March of 2022. And even though the fire looked suspicious with the timing of everything, the fire marshal's office ruled it accidental and said it just happened to be a horrible coincidence. Now, as far as the ongoing searches, a team of investigators working behind the scenes ended up making a major discovery that confirmed their suspicions about Brian. Even though Brian was acting very cooperative and compliant, the truth was he had completely lied to police about his whereabouts during those first few days in January before he reported his wife missing. And so on January 8th, 2023, Brian Walsh was arrested and charged with misleading the police during the course of an investigation. And there's actually footage of him being arrested and it is so creepy. He gives one of the eeriest looking smiles. And I saw a clip of this on social media and had to know more more about this case. That's actually how I first found out about it. I was just so freaked out by the way that he was smiling as they were taking him out of that house. And that same day, a search warrant was executed in his home, and I will get into the details of that in a sec. But the following day, he was arraigned in court, and it was on that day that the rest of the world started to see Brian for the liar that he truly is. Part of the charge before the court right now, the defendant is charged under the intimidation, that being misleading the police in the course of an investigation. The investigation was into the um, missing person of Anna Walsh. Norfolk County District Attorney Lynn Beland will be prosecuting Brian Walsh. And during his arraignment in Quincy District Court, she went through his story piece by piece and discredited all of his statements. She started out by laying out Brian's statement that Anna had left for the airport around 6 a.m. on January 1st and took either an Uber or a Lyft to the airport. But in reality, there were no records to indicate that an Uber or Lyft had ever gone to their house on January 1st. Like I mentioned before, Anna's phone pinged in the area of her home on January 1st and 2nd, indicating that she never left the area at all. And it was left stationary in the home from New Year's Eve up until 3.14 a.m. on January 2nd. And at that point, her phone was turned off completely. Police checked during the course of this investigation. There was not a Yuba uh, or any kind of lift that had picked her up on January 1st. Uh, in fact, in the course of the investigation, it was determined that her cell phone pinged in the area of the house, which is located in our Chief Justice Cushing Way, that her phone pinged on the first and the second, which is after the defendant had said she had left. 
next, Brian's whole story about going to his mom's house and running errands for her was completely picked apart and disproven. As we just discussed, he told police that he had driven to his mother's house, which is located in Swampscott, Massachusetts, and he got lost on the way there because he didn't have his cell phone. He then said he ran errands for her at CVS and Whole Foods. But in the hearing, we learn that he did not, in fact, go to Whole Foods or CVS because neither surveillance cameras or receipts could place him there. He also publicly indicated and stated to the police that he went to Whole Foods and CVS. Police uh, subsequently did surveillance and checked. There was no surveillance or indication that he went to Whole Foods nor CVS. He indicated he purchased some items. There's no receipts for him having purchased that. He then returned home. Next, the DA went through his whole claim that on January 2nd, he never left the house other than to take his son, his oldest son, to get a chocolate shake. As you could probably guess, this is very much not true, and what he actually did is extremely disturbing. Even though surveillance cameras do place him at Press Juicery in Norwell, Massachusetts, just one town over from Cohasset, this was not the only stop he made even though that's what he told investigators. Sometime after 4 p.m., Brian can be seen on surveillance footage in Rockland, Massachusetts, just 10 minutes down the road from Norwell, wearing a black surgical mask and blue surgical gloves as he pushes a massive cart around Home Depot. While he's there, he is seen buying $450 worth of cleaning supplies, including mops, tape, a tarp, a Tyvek suit with boot covers, buckets, goggles, baking soda, a hacksaw, and a hatchet. Surveillance check during the investigation indicated that defendant, in fact, on January 2nd, sometime after 4 o'clock, went to the Home Depot. He's on surveillance at that time, purchasing about $450 worth of cleaning supplies. And if you consume a lot of true crime, you likely know exactly what he was planning to do with those items. After that, the DA shared that during the search warrant of his home, they ended up finding blood and a broken, bloody knife in the basement. Uh, police obtained a search warrant and actually searched the house with crime scene services. During that time, they found blood in the basement. Blood was found in the basement area, as well as a knife, which also She alleges that the lies that Brian told police were meant to slow them down in order to give him enough time to clean up, which is why he got the charge of misleading the police during the course of an investigation. Now, of course, his attorney also had a chance to speak at the arraignment, but the overall point that she made is that all he did wrong was not tell the police about going to Home Depot, which would technically be a violation of his probation in his federal court case. She says that he has been cooperative and under police supervision and should not be held for any reason. And while Brian pleaded not guilty to the charges, the judge ultimately decided that the bail would be set at $500,000. So in the days following Brian's arrest, the Cohasset community came together in celebration of Anna in hopes that the investigation into her disappearance would quickly bring answers. On January 12th, people gathered at the First Parish Unitarian Universalist Church where many spoke out. It was short, but a very impactful vigil that was held by religious members in the community. Prayer vigil has just wrapped up in Cohasset, Massachusetts, where the community is gathering to honor Anna Walsh. The mother of three has not been seen since New Year's Day. Let's send things over now to 12 News reporter Alexandra Leslie, who is live for us on Cohasset Town Common. Alex? Well, Kim, this vigil was brief, but still impactful. And earlier in the day, though the town did not organize this event, the town manager provided a brief statement saying that the community was coming together to support those who are suffering as a result of this unfolding tragedy. Now, this event was organized by various South Shore faith leaders who said that anyone was welcome to attend. The small coastal town has been bustling in recent days as investigators continue to search the state for evidence in an effort to locate Anna. Some spoke about Anna as a person, while others made pleas that her children, who remain in state custody at this time, stay together. As you can imagine, most people are very concerned about what will happen to the kids, including myself. That was one of my first questions here. And I just feel so bad for them losing their amazing mother and likely their father too, which him not being in their life is honestly probably a good thing. But I can imagine that her disappearance is having a horrible effect on them and the community is very concerned.
a horrible movie that we're watching and that we're in. In real life. Natasha Skye and Pamela Barty are desperate for answers in Anna Walsh's disappearance. And the one way they feel they can help involves their friend's three young boys who were placed in DCF custody on Sunday following their father Brian's arrest. You know, you've got three boys under six years old dealing with what could be an extreme trauma. You don't know what they heard that night, what they saw that night, what they, God knows what they're in for. We want to get those boys together to pass to the families who are qualified, who are willing to adapt them, who will take care of them, but together, not separately. Our close-knit friends are all trying to help every way that they can and take the children in. And that's why we were surprised to hear that they went under state custody. Even though it seems like it's too late, most likely to save Anna, hopefully her kids can be saved from this very toxic monster of a person. During all this time, investigators did not slow down at all when it comes to their search efforts and what they're doing to help bring answers to this community. Investigators continuing their search today for Anna Walsh, going in and out of this Cohasset home where the mom of three was last seen between 4 and 6 a.m. New Year's Day. Something like this doesn't usually happen around here. Here, so I think it might have a little more impact on people. Michael Johnston has kids of his own. He says the tight-knit community is now on alert after hearing today's revelations in court. I saw the arraignment today and that was pretty troubling. Investigators sharing that during their execution of a search warrant on Sunday, blood and a broken knife were found in the Walsh's basement. It's scary. It's definitely disheartening to hear about any human, let alone another woman. Now for the past 24 hours, police have been combing the woods around the house looking for any sign of Anna and more evidence about what could have happened to her. In fact, on the same day that Brian was arraigned on charges of misleading the police, investigators searched a trash transfer facility in Peabody, Massachusetts, and found crucial evidence. Search teams and canine units spent hours digging and found several trash bags containing blood, a hatchet, rugs, cleaning supplies, and more. The items were immediately believed to be connected to Anna's disappearance and sent to the lab for testing. After investigators spent hours in hazmat suits, combing through mountains of trash with the help of police canines in Peabody Monday, the I-teams now learn more about what was found at this transfer station off Route 1. I-team sources say there was evidence connected to missing Cohasset mom, Anna Walsh. Sources tell our I-team investigators found trash bags with blood, a hatchet, a rug, and used cleaning supplies. Their search of the trash facility unfolding hours after Anna's husband, Brian Walsh, was in Quincy District Court, charged with misleading the investigation into her disappearance. And as shocking as all of this information has been to the public, at that point, there was still information that investigators knew that the public didn't yet. Investigators also uncovered several mysterious purchases and many very disturbing and incriminating Google searches, which I will get into here in a bit. And it was this combination of evidence that led to Brian Walsh's arrest on January 17th, 2023 for the murder of his wife. Now, Brian has, of course, pleaded not guilty. Even though prosecutors alleged that he murdered his wife, then dismembered her and discarded her body. Norfolk District Attorney Michael Morrissey has announced that a murder warrant has been issued in the death of Anna Walsh, the Cohasset mother who has been missing since on or about New Year's Day. Of course, you're looking at video of her husband, Brian Walsh, now charged with murder. So finally, during Brian's arraignment on January 18th, we learned a lot more about the evidence leading to Brian's arrest. And to say that it's shocking would be honestly a huge understatement. It is so disturbing. Now at five, the new evidence prosecutors revealed in their case against Brian Walsh, how they say he tried to cover up his wife's murder and the information they say he sought online, including 10 ways to dispose of a dead body. D.A. Beeland again went through the timeline of events and shared what investigators found to point towards Brian's guilt. So obviously we know that Brian claimed that on January 1st, he went and visited his mom and then went to CVS and Whole Foods to run errands for her. And we also know that this actually isn't true. Then to just go over it again, on January 2nd, he tells officers that he only left the house to go get this chocolate shake with his son. We also know that is not true and that he also went to Home Depot and purchased $450 worth of cleaning supplies. But what we 
didn't know yet is that on January 3rd, cell data from Brian's phone showed that he drove to Brockton and Abington, which he never disclosed to police. And while he was there, Brian can be seen on surveillance cameras at a few apartment complexes, tossing what appears to be several heavy trash bags into dumpsters. He is literally seen flinging these heavy bags over his shoulder in order to get high enough to throw them into the dumpster. And it is sadly believed that these bags contained parts of Anna's body, which he is believed to have dismembered in order to dispose of her more easily. And very unfortunately, before police even knew that Anna was missing, these dumpsters were emptied and the contents were taken to be incinerated. So if Anna's body was in fact put in those dumpsters, it seems likely that she will never be found. Remains which haven't been found because prosecutors say he threw them in dumpsters in Abington and Brockton, which were later taken away for incineration on January 3rd, one day before Cohasset police arrived at his home for a well-being check on Anna. Surveillance shows the defendant's Volvo, as well as a male fitting the defendant's appearance, exit a car near the dumpster. He walks to the dumpster carrying a garbage bag. He's leaning and it appears to be heavy as he has to heft it, heft it into the dumpster. It was also revealed during his arraignment on January 4th, the same day police performed their wellness check and learned of Anna's disappearance, that Brian is said to have made a trip to Home Goods, TJ Maxx, and Lowe's, where he purchased towels, bath mats, men's clothing, squeegees, and a trash can. Also, while police were performing that wellness check, they looked in Brian's car and they noticed that his back seats were down and there was a plastic liner over them. And when they went back the next day, the liner was gone and Brian just told him that he threw it out. Now, it is unclear whether or not he gave them an explanation of what the liner was for. Then we learned that on January 5th, Brian's cell data shows that he made another trip out to Swampscott, Massachusetts, where his mother lived, and his phone traveled towards the southwest corner of the building where the dumpsters are located. And he only stayed there for a short period of time, showing us that he did not go and visit his mother, that he was likely there getting rid of more evidence. And on January January 8th, if you remember, when their home was searched, investigators found blood and a bloody knife located in the basement, although now it was revealed that a second knife was also located. Next, and very importantly, the DA goes over the search of the Peabody Trash Transfer Facility that happened on January 9th. She reveals that investigators uncovered 10 trash bags containing items such as towels, slippers, tape, gloves, a hacksaw, a hatchet, a piece of a necklace that Anna had been known to wear, a rug, a pair of her boots, her COVID-19 vaccination card, and more. And many of these items were bloodstained and had traces of baking soda, as if he tried to clean them. Investigators recovered 10 trash bags. Inside the trash bags, many of these items contained uh, stains uh, consistent with blood, infected lot. Among the items secured were towels, rags, slippers, tape, high-vex soup, gloves, cleaning agents, carpets, rugs, hunter boots, Prada purse, a COVID-19 vaccine card in the name of Anna Walsh, a hacksaw, a hatchet, and some cutting shears. The purse and boots were described as what Anna was last seen in. A portion of the rug was heavily stained with red-brown stains. The substance was consistent with also having baking soda on it. There was a portion of a necklace consistent with one that Anna had been seen wearing in photos. The state crime lab performed testing on certain selected items that were uh, recovered from those trash bags. There was human blood on found and investigators say that these items made it to the trash facility from a dumpster in Swampscott, right over near his mother's apartment, where Brian was seen on surveillance video throwing away several trash bags. And probably one of the most shocking things that we found out during the arraignment was about his Google searches. Now, these searches were made December 27th, January 1st, January 2nd, and January 3rd, and they were made using his son's iPad. And it all started December 27th when he Googled what 
what's the best state for a divorce for a man? Now that was his least incriminating search, but it gets so much worse. And again, before I go through these, I want to warn you that these are very disturbing and very graphic. So these are his Google searches on January 1st. 4.55 a.m. How long before a body starts to smell? 4.48 a.m. How to stop a body from decomposing? 5.20 a.m. How to bound a body? 5.47 a.m. 10 ways to dispose of a dead body if you really need to. 6.25 a.m. How long for someone to be missing to inherit? 6.34 a.m. Can you throw away body parts? 9.29 a.m. What does formaldehyde do? 9.34 a.m. How long does DNA last? 9.59 a.m. Can identification be made on partial remains? 11.34 a.m. Dismemberment and the best ways to dispose of a body. 11.44 a.m. How to clean blood from a wooden floor. 11.56 a.m. Luminol to detect blood. 1.08 p.m. What happens when you put body parts in ammonia? 1.21 p.m. Is it better to throw crime scene clothes away or wash them? And then the following are searches he made on January 2nd. 12.45 p.m. Hacksaw best tool to dismember. 1.10 p.m. Can you be charged with murder without a body? 1.14 p.m. Can you identify a body with broken teeth? And then the following searches were made January 3rd. 1.02 p.m. What happens to hair on a dead body? 1.13 p.m. What is the rate of decomposition on a body found in a plastic bag compared to on a surface in the woods? 1.20 p.m. Can baking soda make a body smell good? Now, if you are highly disturbed and overwhelmed by all that information, you are not alone. It is just shocking and horrific and honestly just disgusting to think about. This guy is such a fucking monster. But what's good about the amount of searches that he made is he likely really hosed himself. I mean, if not with all the other dumb shit he did, but all these searches will hopefully really help the prosecution when Brian's trial finally begins. Now, of course, I have to say that Brian Walsh is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Although with all the cold, hard facts I just shared with you, it's hard to see him as an innocent man. Of course, at this point, Brian has pleaded not guilty. Obviously, we don't know a motive yet, but there are a few possibilities that reporters have kind of been discussing. So investigators learned that Anna's real estate portfolio was extensive and valuable, which could possibly explain why Brian wanted her dead. She owned several properties between Massachusetts, Maryland, and Washington, D.C., which would make sense given her career in real estate. And Brian is not listed as an owner or co-owner on any of her properties, at least at the time of her death. But he likely stood to gain a lot of money as the beneficiary of her estate. The portfolio is worth an estimated $2.8 million, although in the past five years, she sold at least four homes and earned over $3 million on those sales. And not even a week before Anna went missing, she actually closed on the sale of an apartment in Massachusetts, which she originally purchased for $137,000, but sold for $200. 20,000. Learning more about Anna Walsh's real estate portfolio as police investigate the missing Massachusetts mom's disappearance and murder. Walsh's husband is charged with her murder. Property records show she owned nearly $2 million worth of real estate. Her husband's name was not listed on any of those properties. Investigators are looking into that would-be inheritance as a possible motive. And as many of you know, killing for financial gain is sadly not an uncommon motive in situations like this. Uh, by all accounts, the friend mm -hmm. said that the job that she got in Washington, D.C., um, was a good one. And Brian himself said in court documents, in you know asking for leniency in the sentencing for the art fraud, uh, she got a better job. She has a great income. She's got great benefits. And I, I can't move to Washington because of our situation. Absolutely. So if Brian was uh, feeling bad about himself because he financially was not measuring up, he probably considered himself a loser financially, was under a lot of financial duress, uh, which really increases mental health issues. So it increases a person's depression, anxiety, rage level, in some cases, suicidality. And I would imagine that Brian was very jealous of his wife and angry with his wife. Here's someone who he might have wanted to be the perfect wife 
and he presented himself as this uber successful businessman. And now he's under house arrest and he has a very beautiful wife who is very successful. He might've felt he was in danger of losing her and losing everything and his pride took over and he's a violent guy. There's also the possibility that maybe this was a case of if I can't have her, nobody can. Brian was possibly facing a lot of jail time for his federal fraud charges. And I'm sure there was a lot of uncertainty about what his wife would be doing while he was in prison. We know Brian struggled with his mental health and was a diagnosed sociopath, but it's possible we may never fully know why he did what he did or what he's accused of doing, I should say. Until there's a trial, I'm not sure we will know anything for certain. Most recently on February 9th, Brian appeared via Zoom for a status hearing. The husband of the missing mother from Cohasset will face a judge today. Brian Walsh is accused of killing his wife and mother of his three children, Anna Walsh. Prosecutors detailed in court how they think he tried to cover up the crime by pretending that she went missing from their home on New Year's Day. During this time, the prosecution actually asked for a continuance, which essentially just asked that they reschedule the status hearing for a later date. They asked for the hearing to be put as late as the end of March to give more time for the grand jury to review the case and decide whether Brian will be indicted. The defense actually agreed to this continuance and they told the judge that the reason they wanted more time was because the prosecution has handed over very little of the discovery which should have been given to them right away. I'd be asking for a continuance on today's hearing. My expectation is that this matter will be finished in the grand jury by the end of March, but hopefully mid-March. Um, so I would do whatever is agreeable to Ms. Minor for her next day. Attorney Minor? Uh, Your Honor, we I will say we have received very little discovery to date. So I'm hoping that, that the discovery will be fulsome. We've received like basically nothing. I have no problem with putting it on for a month. In fact, even sooner, because if in fact we get all of the discovery, that's one thing. But if there's still discovery issues, like we haven't even received the search warrants for my client's car, the, the inventories for search warrants. I mean, the basic stuff that we should have had like immediately, we don't have. So if we could have a, a date like three weeks out, I would... For another status conference, just so I can review the discovery, see what is missing, if anything. I believe that's a reasonable request, and I think three days, and we'll review discovery. I do ask both parties to work uh, to get all discovery completed, okay? Certainly, Your Honor. Uh, After listening to both sides, the judge ultimately decided that they would meet again for another status hearing on March 1st. And during this time, Brian would remain at the Denham House of Corrections without bail. And even though we don't have all the answers we want yet, I do believe that justice will come for Anna. There's overwhelming amounts of evidence here. Sadly, her body is still yet to be found. And I can only hope that her family somehow gets some of her remains so they can properly lay her to rest. And it is just heartbreaking to think of these kids losing out on a wonderful mother. It's just devastating to think of all the things in their lives that she will not be able to be there for because of their evil father. And right now the kids are in custody of the Massachusetts Department of Children and Families. Not much information about them has been shared. And I think that's a good thing. I hope it remains that way and that they're able to maintain their privacy throughout this tragedy. I wish I had more to share with you guys at this point, but as of right now, that's all I know. This case is just devastating to talk about, honestly, and very, very scary. No matter how many cases I cover, it still shocks me somehow that people are able to do this to someone that they love, someone who they have shared years with in a marriage, someone who they have had children with, who they have watched give birth to their children. It's just so sad. I really feel for those kids and for Anna's family. This must just be so traumatic. I, I cannot even imagine being in their shoes. That is going to be it for me today, guys. Thank you for joining me for another episode. And make sure you follow the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It really does help me out. If you want to watch the video version of this show, you can find it on my YouTube channel, which will be linked, or you can just search Kendall Ray. I will be back with another episode soon, but until then, stay safe out there.